And I can just say that this book has been very slow in getting to the main meat of the message. But it's a deliberate reason for that. Because the author of the book of Hebrews, wanting to make sure that the audience to whom the book was originally written understands very well the greatness, the awesomeness, the majestic, and, 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 and the power of the living God. Yes. You know, we throw those things out. We just sang those songs tonight. We say, how great thou art. But the truth of the matter is, for many of us, we really have nothing really to compare the greatness of God with. But to the original hearers of this book, the Hebrews, they had regular encounters with angels. And so therefore, in chapters 1 and 2, the writer tries to tell them, yes, you knew about angels. But the God I'm trying to introduce to you is bigger and greater than angels. Secondly, in chapters 2 and 3, the writer also understood that Israel, as a people, esteemed very highly the ministry of Moses. And it was a great ministry for that day and for that time. And so because he knew that Moses was revered in the Israel uh, economy of things when it comes to the kingdom of God, it took a long time in chapters 2 and 3 to establish and to, yes, give Moses the credence that he deserved as being a man of God. However, to quickly remind them that the God is introducing and the God that's on the scene, Jesus Christ, is much more glorious than Moses that they esteem highly. And then chapter 4, it comes on to tell us about how we should enter into the rest of God, the finished work of God. Not a vacation, not a location, but come into a relationship with who God is. If you remember in chapter 3, uh, in verse 1, we talk about how consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So now, he's talking about the angels, he's talking about Moses. And so now in chapter 5, actually the, 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 the last part of chapter 4 and now going into chapter 5, he begins to address the, uh, the other prominent figure in the Old Testament history, in the person of the high priest. Now, again, in order for us to bridge the cultural gap and to bridge uh, the gap of uh, what really is taking place here, you have to understand that in the Jewish nation and in the Jewish system, a tremendous weight of significance and emphasis was placed upon the glorious office of the high priest. Huge. Particularly in the days of Christ. In the days of his earthly ministry. Why? Because in those days, they were under Roman occupation and therefore had no kings. So the high priest in Israel was the sole, singular, most prominent leader and representation of all the Israelites back in Palestine. He was the president of the Sanhedrin. In fact, Jesus could not have been crucified except by his permission. 
dressed in the most glorious, beautiful robes. I mean, when if, if and when he came into a room, everybody stood at attention because this was a high priest. Very, very, very prominent, very, very significant, especially in the, in, in, in the system whereby there was no king. Therefore, it became very important for this writer, whom most people believe was Paul, to encourage the current Hebrew believers who had just made the transition from Judaism where Aaron and his succeeding priesthood were highly revered, highly esteemed, very much celebrated. So it became very important for him to say, you know what? I'm not taking the priesthood away from you. Indeed, there was the Aaronic priesthood. However, in this new era of grace, in this new season that we're in, where Jesus Christ is Lord, you need to recognize that God did not remove the priesthood. If anything, he replaced the priesthood. And so now, this chapter, Paul is trying to convince and encourage the Jewish believers, and by extension, you and I, that whatever they had in the previous system, under the Aaronic priesthood, as good as it was for that day, there is something much more glorious. That Jesus has replaced the Aaronic priesthood and now, like back in the day, is our most high priest. And so the chapter, chapter 5 now, begins to tell us, we're going to see the distinction between the priestly ministry of Aaron and his sons versus the current high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and why this is much more superior to what they had. Amen? So the idea here is, it's not trying to take something away from them, but rather helping them to understand that what God has given them now is far more superior to what they used to have under the Aaronic priesthood. And our understanding of this is so vital because what it does is it helps me and you truly, truly appreciate the ministry that Jesus offers us today. Amen? Amen. So now with that, Hebrews chapter 5. Well, really, to, to, to really make the sense of it, let's start from Hebrews chapter 4, uh, from verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore boldly, let, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, with that, we transit to chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, immediately here, we begin now to see what this priest does. The first thing we are told in verse 1, we are told that he's taken from among men and is appointed for men in things 
pertaining to God. Why is he taken from among men? Because he's going to have to represent men and therefore he has to be like men. A priest back in the day is the person who stands before God for the people and before the people for God. He was a mediator. He was a man whom the, men, whom the people went to to bring their grievances, to uh, confess their sins. And he prescribed the appropriate sacrifice to take care or remedy those sins. So he told the people about what God needed, what God wanted, and he represents the people back to God to make sure that I was taken care of. So he was taken from among men. In other words, he was like flesh. He was like man, like all of us. Why was he like man? Because he needed to be like me and you to have a feeling or understanding for who I am as a human being. But at the same time, he was appointed by God. Why? Because he needed to know what God wanted in order to mediate between God and man. That's verse 1. Okay? So, we are also told that he offered both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. Because of this, it's required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So the first four verses, really, is identifying for us what Aaron did. He was taken from among men. He was a Levite. He was appointed by God, Exodus chapter 28. God was the one that called him out and said, I'm going to have Aaron and his sons do this. So he just didn't presume this position. He offered sacrifices and gifts as prescribed by God. But not only that, he had to have compassion. He had to be tender. He had to be gentle. Now, in looking at this particular verse, history, the Jewish history, lists for us many of the priests who fell well short of this requirement of, requirement of compassion. Some of them were compassionate, others were not quite as compassionate. And what that meant was when a person came to them to say, you know, I want to confess my sin, I've done this X, Y, Z. If they were compassionate, they handled it tenderly and they helped them through. But if they were not, then they chastised them. Okay? Now, so the first four verses is telling us here what Aaron and his sons did. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron. But look at that verse 3. In the Aaronic priesthood, we are told that it is required of the priest himself to also sacrifice for his own sins. Now, it is important for Paul to mention this because now he's about to start making a comparison. He's about to start telling us the difference between the old system and what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Aaron, as a high priest, that was highly esteemed and revered in Israel, 
also had weaknesses and infirmities. So he could not sacrifice for the people until he first sacrificed for himself. So, verse 5, we begin to see a shift in the narration. So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh my word. Something big is happening now. Jesus did not presume this office. He didn't name himself as high priest. And one of the reasons for which the Jewish people missed who Jesus was was the fact that they could not reconcile the Son of God and the priesthood together. They just could not reconcile it. In one passage of scripture, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we understand that it's wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They get that. But in another scripture, in the same Isaiah chapter 53, he talks about a man of sorrows, acquainted with sorrows, bruised, and all of that. A, a root out of dry ground. So for them, these are two contrary things. How can it be a Messiah and at the same time a man acquainted with sorrows? They could not fathom that. Here in his scripture, in the, in the New Testament, for the first time, God brings both of those offices together in a way that we can see it. Number one, we are told in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that mean? King. He's the son of God. Yes. He's the king of kings. Yes. Verse 6, also he says in another place, you are a priest forever. So for the first time, this writer is helping the Hebrews understand, listen, the person you've been reading about, about the Messiah, the Son of God, is this high priest I'm talking about. Not only is he the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also the same one that Psalms 110 verse 4 says, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Look at a big distinction between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. First of all, for me and you, as Gentiles, you should be dancing on your heads. Because God is going to bring his son, Jesus, to be a high priest. He did not make him a tribal high priest like Aaron. God pulled an ace out of the bag and named his son a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Where do we first see that name? Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High out of Midian. He is a Gentile. So God is going to make his son a high priest. His son of who was of Jewish descent. He's going to make him a high priest. 
This high priestly of the Son of God is not limited to the high priesthood of Israel, one nation. He's going to be the universal priest of the entire universe. In other words, Hebrews, you guys had a great thing. You had Aaron, you had Moses, you had the angels, you had the old covenant. Wonderful. But God is doing a new thing. And this new thing is not going to be limited to just Israel. It's going to be a global, worldwide, universal phenomenon. And God is going to choose an order for his son. And he chooses the order of Melchizedek, a Gentile. Whose name means the king of peace. But not only that. If you look at that verse again, in verse 6. Let me read it. It says, you are a priest, what? Forever. In other words, as long as the sun is out, as long as the moon stays hangs in the sky, as long as the stars are operating, as long as the earth remains, your priesthood is sure. Oh man, that's, that's huge. I don't know how many Catholics are here. Or previous card, I know Charles Zick, you must be you must be a former Catholic. You must be, you must be. <laughs> you are, okay. How many popes have we had in the Catholic Church? Uh, forever. Many of them. Many of them. That's the closest example I can use to bring this illustration to you. Can you imagine the first pope? If it was a good man, a godly man, and you just fell in love with him and, and you just thought man this guy will set Catholic church in order and from this day forward everything is going to be hunky dory and then 20 years later he dies you have to wait for the white smoke to get the next pope and you don't know what the next pope he's going to be about and on and on and on they are limited in their rulership by death This new Pope now has been there, what, a year or two, and already has made significant, tremendous impact on the Catholic Church. Yes. But how long will that impact before? We don't know. Because once he dies, and the next one comes, he can reverse everything he has done. Why? The Pope, the papal office is not forever. Yes. Those men are limited by virtue of death. That's why Aaron was not the high priest during Jesus' era in his earthly ministry. He had died. But God is saying to the Hebrews, in your old system, Aaron died, Nadab died, Abihu died, Ithamar died, all the succeeding sons of Aaron, over time, they are all dead, and therefore, their priesthood ceased. But I'm bringing you a new high priest who will be forever. His ministry will be in the limitless power of endless life. You will not have to worry about new regime today and another regime tomorrow. Those of us that came from Africa, we understand that. Six o'clock in the morning, you hear the military song going, ladies and gentlemen, I'm general so-so-so-so. I've taken over the government. Yes. 
And then after three years, you don't know what happens again. So this priesthood is forever. Whatever is in place now, we don't have to be concerned that it's going to change tomorrow. It is a consistent ministry that is there forever in the power of an endless life. Oh man, that has to have blown their mind away to say, wow. Because it's after the order of the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek priesthood. It lives forever. That makes a whole lot of difference. Okay. Now, in verse 7. So, so really, up to this point, the, the, the point that Paul is trying to make is to show us that uh, uh, what those guys had given up in the Iranian priesthood and his successors, that Jesus received far more than they had lost. Far more. As to his rank, his character, and the quality of his service. Okay. Now, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Now, I think it's important for me to, uh, to say one or two things in those two, about those two verses. Number one, in that verse 7, we know that in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications with cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, what did the Bible say? And was heard because of his godly fear. He was heard. Now, I think it's important for us to take a pause. When you and I talk about answered prayers, usually we talk about God changing the situation. Let me, let me just take a pause here to, for you to really get this. This, this is the practical application from this tonight's teaching. Jesus cried. He prayed. He supplicated. When? Where? At the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass over me. And now we are told that his prayer was answered. So the question then is, if that prayer was answered, did it mean that God forestalled the agony and the pain of him going to the cross? No, he did not. He did not. This is the practical application of this tonight. Because where you and I are, we have situations, circumstances, hardship, distress, all kinds of things for which we're praying. And we have a preconceived expectation of what the answer must be. Jesus prayed. He cried. He sweated. He asked God, can this cup pass over me? Nevertheless, not my will, but that will be done. So, here the Bible tells us that God answered his prayer. Is it possible that God answered his prayer the same way, the same way he may be answering some of our prayers today? What did he do? God, in answering the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, did not lighten the burden. Rather, is strengthening his resolve to bear it. 
I'm going to say that again. So what I'm saying to you and I, there are times and situations that we find ourselves in of which we are praying, God, deliver me from this. God heard you. He answers your prayer, but not by delivering you from the situation, but by giving the strength to bear it. It gives you the strength. It gives you the strength to be heard. That's exactly what he did for his son. He sent legions of angels. The, the Bible said the angels, angels strengthened him. In other words, you receive the strength and the capacity to bear under whatever you are going through. The thing will not put you under. You will overcome the situation. You will overcome the situation for sure. But it's not the way in which you thought you are going to do it. You're not going to escape from it. You will overcome it. If we take anything away tonight, that has to be it. Now, there are prayers that you pray and God delivers you out of it. No problem. But the challenge with humanity is we get so programmed to think that's the way every deliverance must come. And God is saying, sometimes I will do it like that and other times I'll just give you strength. That's what he said to Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient. And your strength will be perfected in and through weakness. Amen? So, I know you didn't come to hear that tonight, but you need to (laughs) just take that. (laughs) Because, I mean, and then of course we are told in verse 8 that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. What does that mean? Did it mean that Jesus passed from disobedience to obedience? No. 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 What the Bible is saying there is he tasted the consequence of being obedient. He learned what was involved in obedience. Obedience will cost you sometimes. It will cost you. It will cost you. So by obeying God and following through with what God told him to do, as a human being, he learned what was involved in obedience. Okay, verse 9. I haven't been perfected. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now again, what does it mean to be perfected there? Does it mean that Jesus was not perfect and he needed to be perfect? No, that's not what it is. That's not what it's saying. It is referring to the perfection of his qualifications of sympathy, of love, of mercy, understanding, and all of those qualifications that were necessary in a high priest. Verse 10. Again, we are told, it was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, at this point here, it's very interesting that Paul wanted to say a lot more, but he, he, put, he held back a little bit because he appraised his audience and he said, you know what? You guys are not ready. And it's amazing that Jesus did the same thing. He said, I have so much more to say to you, but you are not able to bear it. And it made it clear to us in that verse 10, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. He said, but since you have become dull of hearing I think we should pay attention a little bit to that dullness of hearing. 
What did he say? He said, you have become. Which means there was a time when they were not like that. They used to be sharp. They were right on it. They had understanding. They were discerning. But something happened in their experience that made them to become dull of hearing. May that not be our portion in Jesus' name. We see, because when that happens, even though there's much more that God wants to give us, we'll be wasting our time giving it because we are not able to process it. So he says to them, he says, ah, Mechizedek is a huge subject. It is hard to explain, but you guys are not ready. And then it uses that time to explain further about their dullness of hearing. You see, before I ever lose my desire for God, I first become dull in hearing. It's a process. We get dull in our hearing. We get dull in our sensitivity. We get dull and we just, we, we, we just begin to turn off of the, in the things of God. And after you've done that and you don't correct that for a period of time, all of a sudden, your desire is gone. That was the caution that he was giving to these believers. Now, look at verse 12. It gets a little tougher with them. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. I've heard it once, I've heard it twice, I've heard it ten times in this church. Sometimes when Dr. McHenry comes, people say, I don't understand what he's saying. Many, many, many times. It's too deep. But they speak in English language. They say it's too deep. You know what the problem is? We've become dull of hearing. So Paul is saying to these guys, he said, listen, you guys have been in the faith long enough. By now, you guys should be teachers. Now, of course, I'm not talking to you guys tonight because you guys are here. You guys are the ones that are already teachers here. It's those guys that are not here that really this message is talking about. <laughs> no, seriously. He <laughs> said, so for those guys that are not here tonight, they should have been teachers by now. But of course, they've become dull of hearing because we know what they are doing, why they are not here. So he said to them, I have some, and, and really seriously, when you examine scriptures, it's not just Dr. Hamby or uh, Kelly Varna and this guy that are deep. No, the Bible talks about, yeah, the deep things of God. The Bible talks about, the, the scriptures talk about that. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about we shouldn't be children, but we should be like grown men. So you have children, you have men. You have the deep things of God. So there are some things that are deep in God and some, th- some things that are on the surface. Okay? And there are some things that are milk and there are some things that are solid. An infant, you can't give them solid meals. Even though you mean well, you want to feed them, you kill them. But on the other hand, if you give me, it's talking milk to, for, for meal. I'm hungry. I came from work. So, so uh, uh, I'm hungry. I just give you a feeding bottle. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> you just drink the thing, it goes right through you. You're hungry again. That's the problem here. He said, You guys should have been, by now, such stewards of the word of God, you should be teachers now. 
However, I cannot teach you deep things. I cannot share with you Mechizedek yet. Why? Because rather than, than you guys being teachers, I have to go back and almost like giving you milk. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Why? For he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Where are we tonight? That's where I'm going to close tonight. That's the end of chapter 5. Where are we? Are we babes? Or have we become skilled in the word of righteousness? Are we still drinking milk? Or do we partake of solid food? The only way we make the transition from milk to solid food is the use of our senses through exercise. Let me just say this based on what we've seen here. Spiritual maturity, according to verses 12 and 13, is not a matter of time. Did you hear what I just said? In other words, well, you can almost say the opposite of what I just said, actually. It can be a matter of time. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is how long a person has been a believer does not determine how mature you are. A person can become, can, could have been born again for 10 years or 15 years and never grow. Now, this is a backdrop for chapter 6. That's why this, is, this ending is so important. Chapter 6 is a very, very controversial chapter. I'm preparing you now. Very, very controversial. But you can only understand it by understanding how it's closing chapter 5. He's talking about people who should have been much further along, much further developed in their work with God, and they are still like babies. And like I said, Spiritual maturity is not determined by how long I've been born again. This is how it's determined. I'll run through it very quickly. Prayer. Prayer. How do I mature as a believer? I have to pray. I have to pray. And at the appropriate time, we're going to talk about praying. The praying there is not to change God but to align me with the purposes of God so I can become what God desires for me. Yes. Study. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. These are the ways I grew as a believer. I pray, I study. Then meditation. Meditation. What does that mean? I study I sit, I reflect on what I studied. Don't just read and get up and go. go. No. Reflect. What is that verse saying? What does it mean? What is the application that God is trying to bring into my life? Reflect, 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 reflect. I'm telling you, one of the, that, that's one of the most powerful tools that I think God has given believers. Meditation. In the word now. I'm not talking about medication and yoga. 
Don't leave here and say, Pastor says medication and then go join the yoga club and sit down, cross your leg, and, be, and, and before I'm trying to bend the metal with your eyes. No, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> meditation in the Word of God. Chewing that word over and over and over and over. Number four, how do I grow? How do I become a child? Faithfulness. Huge. And let me, let me define that to you. You've prayed, you've studied, you meditate on the word of God, and based on your meditation, God said something. You got a rema. God spoke to you. Some action that you need to take. You will only grow when you are faithful to do that what God has said. Nobody can ever steal that experience from you. You know that you know that you know because God said it, you reflected on it, you got up and did it, and the manifestation is, is real. Nobody can take it away from you. Nobody. That's a critical issue for us as believers. We hear, we know what he's saying, and sometimes many of us, we lack the action. We don't take that action. Number five, diligence. Diligence. And what this is talking about is the fact that, you know, God may speak to me and you. You reflect on it. You meditate on it. You are faithful to do it. But the next time around, you say, well, I've done it. I, I, that one, I've, I've been there, done it. Uh, no sweat. So now you don't apply yourself as much the next time around. It's not good. With every experience that God gives me and you, it's intended to press you further into another place with him. To get you hungrier for more. To get you to a place where you're more diligent. You're searching more. Those that do hunger and do thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And lastly, successfully overcoming temptations. Every last, last, one, of, last one of us will be tempted. You can take that to the bank. Some of you are tempted today already. Maybe it was to yell at the guy next, driving on the next lane that just cut in front of you and give him a finger or two. <laughs> Maybe you had a finger ministry. For <laughs> you are just tempted to give him a finger ministry. And then the Holy Spirit held you back. It is overcoming temptations. You do it long enough. After a while, you look and say, wow. I have one more victory under my belt. Yes. You are growing. You are maturing. Amen? So the point here tonight, we have a high priest who rules and reigns and ministers after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a priest forever. It's an unchanging priesthood. Jesus is not a magician. He's not changing. He said it. He means it. He does it. It's finished. It's finished. On and on and on and on in the scriptures, we hear about his compassion. He saw the multitudes and he felt compassion. And the compassion moved him to action. That's the kind of high priest we have. So whenever we get into trouble, don't run away from him. Run to him. Come boldly, he says. Don't go there timidly and afraid and scared and wondering what he's going to do. No. He said, come boldly. You have a right 
you have access. Come boldly to that throne. You have an ID that allows you to go through the security systems. Nothing is going to stop you. Come boldly to the throne of grace. What are you going to find there? Mercy. Mercy. It's not going to hit you on the head. It's, going to, it's not going to kick you. It's not going to abuse you. You're going to find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. So before you call a man, before you call a woman, go to the throne first. Mercy is waiting for you. Yes. But the good thing about this priesthood, not only does it give you mercy, it gives you grace. In other words, when you leave him, when, when you've, you've been to him, he has mercy upon you and then he gives you grace, which means he empowers you to be above whatever it is that was bugging you. Amen. He does not leave you in the same condition as you went in. He gives you a grace, an enabling that allows you to overcome whatever that situation is. Father, tonight, we thank you that we will not become dull of hearing. We pray that you stoke the flame that's within our hearts. You ignite the fire of your Holy Spirit which you placed within us when we became born again. That we will not allow the persecutions and the afflictions and the day-to-day dealings of our world to cause us to become dull of hearing, but rather God that will become uh, uh, that, uh, that, that the joy of our salvation will continue to just be renewed within us. That we have a hearing ear, a hunger, a thirst for more of you. And in the day of trouble that we know where to go. That you are the refuge and the shelter, the high tower, the buckler. That you sit on the throne and you are beckoning on us to come boldly. That in you, God, we'll find mercy. And we'll receive the grace necessary to overcome whatever the situation is. And so, Father God, we trust you tonight. Our eyes are upon thee. We thank you. We acknowledge our high priest, Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns forever. We welcome you, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Thank you that as we leave this place tonight, we'll continue to cultivate communication with you, dialogue with you, that your word will be sweet in our mouth. God, that we will reflect and meditate in your word day and night, and that you speak to us in your rhema word, and you give us an action, you give us something, you tell us what to do, and we will honor you, we will acknowledge you in all of our ways, and you direct our path, Father God, that your word alone will be a lamp unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Thank you, Father God. Confirm your faithfulness in us and through us. Blessed be the name of the Lord God. We honor you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bless you.